Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come before you this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. And we thank you for the opportunity to see how you have worked among your people through the centuries. Pray, Father, that your word and your spirit will be living and active. Pray that you will bless my words and they will be used for your glory and for the building up of your people. Amen. Turn with me to Esther 8. It'll be on uh, page 414 of your pew Bibles. Esther 8, the word of the Lord. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and I have found favor in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, read from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or a province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on the one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples and the Jews who were ready to be on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. To the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. 
in the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, the feast and the holiday. And many from the from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. In perhaps the greatest animated sequel of all time, which is Toy Story 2, there's a scene where the toys led by Buzz are this close to finally saving Woody. They've gone through all these trials and misadventures, and they finally found Woody, and they're about to rescue him. But they have one more obstacle to get through. There's a great covering the ventilation shaft in which they're sneaking through to get to Woody. And then Rex asks Buzz, what are we going to do, Buzz? We can't get through this grate. And Buzz replies simply, well, use your head. And then the scene immediately cuts to all the toys charging with Rex on their shoulders, using him as a battering ram. Buzz meant something quite different than Rex when he said, well, use your head. In Esther 8, the king's message to Mordecai, could be summed up with the words, use your head. The king is busy being the king, and he trusts Mordecai completely to come up with a solution to the problem. The problem is how to reverse an irreversible decree. We can see how the story of Esther is a bit like our stories. We have God's word, and God's word tells us his plans and his promises for us. But our lives always don't, don't always look like his plans and promises for us. forget what it was like to live in this story. Familiarity can breed forgetfulness. We might be so familiar with the story of Esther that we can forget that this was a scary time for God's people. Our own lives can look like different chapters from Esther. In Esther 2, Esther becomes the queen out of nowhere. How does this great blessing come upon me? This is the Lord's doing something amazing here. But then in Esther 3, Haman has his plot and issues this decree to wipe out all of the Jews. So then you ask, why do these people want to harm me? Why are these scary times, these unsettling times happening? What is God doing? Some of us might be able to say that we're in Esther 8. We've seen God do wonderful things, and then we've seen God do some hard things. And then we see these how he's working through those things and how he's doing wonderful things. And we actually see he has a plan, he has a promise for us. God has his plan and he's promised to do something. We need to remember that, remember and see that even though God has his plan, he still expects us to do something. He uses us as we use our heads. To help you follow along and keep my thoughts organized, we'll follow this outline. We'll look at God's plan, Esther's plea, Mordecai's plodding, the two D's, not two T's, and the people's praise. So let's look at God's plan. I don't mean God's generic, I will save you and bless you plan, but I want us to see how Esther is this Old Testament narrative that lives out Hebrew wisdom literature. It means that Esther, you see these characters in Esther, and they live according to the Psalms and the Proverbs. But they also reap the results of the Psalms and the Proverbs. You need to remember that just because you don't live, you live like A, doesn't mean you're going to uh, get B. Psalms and Proverbs have 
good things to tell us, but often we can think that, oh, if I just live according to this wisdom, I'll get exactly what it says. It doesn't always happen. Esther and Mordecai live out and experience scenes and promises from Psalms and Proverbs. They live this way because they see how that they, as members of God's people, are guaranteed the biggest, best promise of all. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God has been overwhelmingly silent throughout the story of Esther. He doesn't need to speak because he has already spoken. And Mordecai never wavers from God's promise to save his people. Mordecai knows salvation will come from somewhere. He also knows that he and Esther have an opportunity to be the tools in God's hand to bring the salvation that he's promised. In Psalm 18, we have a helpful picture of Mordecai experiencing uh, Psalm 18 in Esther 8. In Psalm 18, David um, has been fleeing from Saul and his enemies, and the Lord delivers him and saves him. And so he writes a psalm to give thanks and praise to God for this deliverance. But he writes it in a general enough way that the people of Israel could use it to celebrate other moments of God's deliverance. I'm just going to read a few verses from Psalm 18 to give you a picture of this. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. This is how the Lord delivered David from his enemies and from Saul. This is also how the Lord delivered the Jews and Mordecai from their enemies and Haman. The man of violence is dead. Haman is literally hanging from his own gallows at this point. God's plan is to deliver and exalt his people. When God's people are exalted, he himself is exalted. David is saved and he turns his deliverance into an opportunity to praise God. In Esther 8, Mordecai is now delivered from Haman, the man of violence. Mordecai issues a decree that goes out to 127 provinces. People whom I had not known served me. Mordecai is living out almost every line of this psalm. When he was sitting at the gate in chapter 3, and he heard about Haman's plot against the Jews, I'm sure Psalm Psalm 18 was far from his mind. When you receive news that your people will be wiped out, don't immediately think that, you know, God could use this to exalt himself. It's usually the last thought in your mind. But he does, and he did. Through Haman's plot and God's silent intervention, God is even more to be exalted for turning such a great calamity into such a great victory. But this doesn't happen without Esther and Mordecai using their heads. This is why Esther has a plea. Esther's plea in verses 3 through 6 She's actually doing something. A little earlier in uh, Esther 7, 4, she amazingly says that if we had just been sold as slaves, I wouldn't be coming before you for our liberation. I wouldn't be bothering you. She's setting low expectations. We do this as sports fans all the time. Beginning of the season, we say, well, if the Tigers just have more wins than losses, 
season probably turn out okay. You don't have to get too disappointed. But we actually want them to win the World Series every year in 33 years, and I haven't seen it happen yet. Similarly, Esther is saying that if you had just made us slaves, we wouldn't have said anything. But because we're all going to die, we're trying to do something about it. She's not asking for a great honor or power. She's asking for life. As long as the Jews are alive, God's plan can still happen. As long as sorry. the Hebrews had been slaves before in Egypt, God had saved them. He can take care of that. He can, he can handle slavery. He's shown that. But they're facing annihilation. The threat is to God's entire plan of salvation. Jews are all still alive, even though they're enslaved. God can still work through that to bring the promised Messiah from David's line. But David's line is actually being threatened by Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. The threat on, on God's entire plan of salvation is tied up in Esther's plea. Her plea boils down to seeking to keep God's plan possible. And if she wanted to stay silent and look on, she could do that. Esther and Mordecai are safe. They're in the presence of the king. They do not settle for their own safety. They use their influence and position to be the means of God's salvation. They do something. Esther's plea is for the revoking of Haman's decree. She draws from the king's sense of justice, and she connects his care for her with her relation to her people. And he grants her her wish. He grants it while making them have to figure out how to fulfill it. Basically, he tells them to use their heads. The request is certainly to be fulfilled. Mordecai has the king's signet ring. He has all authority in the empire. But he needs to figure out how to reverse the irreversible. This brings us to our third point, Mordecai's plotting. I chose the word plotting because it has a sense of ordinary faithfulness. There's nothing too special. Mordecai steps up and he serves. Also needed a word that started with the letter P. And plotting came to mind. So we got plan, plea, plotting, praise. It's an inspired sermon outline. The king honors Mordecai and grants him all power in his name. Mordecai is contrasted with Haman. Haman seeks to use his power in chapter 3 for personal ends. He bribes the king. He uses it to wipe out a people that have personally offended him. Notice, Mordecai doesn't pay the king anything. Esther merely told the king, this is my uncle who raised me, and the king immediately grants him all of this power and authority. Mordecai doesn't have to pay for anything. All this power is just given to him. What does he do with it? He uses his head. Verses 9 through 14 in chapter 8 are almost identical uh, to Haman's decree in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. There's a few notable differences. Mostly it's just a difference of details. But the details show how Mordecai is reversing uh, completely what Haman's done. Things got bad. Sorry. <coughs> things were fine in chapter 2, but things got bad in chapter 3. Mordecai doesn't set things up in such a way as to bring us back to chapter 2. He doesn't restore the status quo. He doesn't settle for going back to the he creates a new status quo. He seeks to uphold justice and remove the enemies of the Jews. In doing all this, he recreates the empire. He doesn't 
try to come to peace with the enemies that um, Haman has raised up and try to cancel out the decree so we're just back to when things are normal again. He uses an opportunity to wipe out the enemies of God's people. There's a sense of urgency with this decree, though. The fastest horses are used to bring it as quickly as possible to the ends of the empire. Take a peek at uh, verse 10. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, red from the royal stud. Then look down at verse 14. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. These are the fastest, best horses in the empire. They've got Kentucky Derby level speed. They have thousands of miles to travel. They're the king's horses, and they're urged by the king's command. Ahasuerus is holding nothing back in helping Mordecai to save the Jews. The story of Esther has been an emotional roller coaster ride. In chapter 2, Esther had become the queen out of nowhere. And then in chapter 3, uh, Haman had brought this plot to destroy the Jews. And then Esther starts to reveal the plot to the king. But then Haman is about to hang Mordecai. And then now it's on the up again with um, Haman dead and uh, Mordecai in position of power. It's just been up and down. Jews were a voiceless minority in the beginning, and they were targeted for extermination. Now they're being delivered and will be allowed to wipe out every enemy. How could this victory be any bigger? How does a silent God cause such a huge turning of the tables? Only the living and true God could deliver his people in such a way. We serve a big God. He saved his people from utter annihilation. Just one reading through the book of Esther ought to make it clear that this silent God is in complete control and that the promises of his word are enough to sustain the faith of his people. Mordecai's plotting is a means of God's extraordinary deliverance. And the text doesn't let us miss this extraordinary moment. And this is where we come to our fourth point, the people's praise. Verses 15 through 17 show the response of the people. We're given this great description of Mordecai these colors, all this new clothing, crown. He goes out to the people. It's an image of this champion striding forth in victory. All the eyes are on him. And looking at this scene, I ask myself, why does this look so familiar? I feel like I've seen this before somewhere. And what made it click in my mind was the signet ring in verse 2. In Genesis, Joseph receives Pharaoh's signet ring. Listen to this description of Joseph compared with Mordecai. Genesis 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Now look at the description of Mordecai uh, in verse 2. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then over to verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king <coughs> in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The descriptions couldn't be more similar. Mordecai is set over the house of Haman. 
is set over 127 provinces. Both Joseph and Mordecai are given new robes and new garments. They both have received the signet ring of the ruler. Mordecai has received a golden crown on his head. And Joseph has this golden chain around his neck. And they're both praised by the people when they are presented. Look how the city of Susa responds to Mordecai in comparison to Haman. In chapter 3, the city was thrown into confusion at Haman's decree. They couldn't understand why Haman wanted to destroy the Jews. In chapter 8, the city rejoices because Haman's wickedness is obvious to all. Also, notice the response of the non-Jews. The response is fear and pretending. This is a full 180 from their planning to kill the Jews and looting them. They're afraid of Mordecai and they're afraid of the Jews. They're maybe the first bandwagoners in history. Haman's dead? Well, I guess I'll jump over to the winning side. We can't pretend to be a part of God's people. At some point, it will require sacrifice. Mordecai and the Jews, it very nearly cost them their lives. The people's praise can be summed up in Proverbs 29.2, which says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Mordecai, in his faithfulness, is living out the wisdom of Proverbs. He's clearly more righteous than Haman. His way is marked by obedience and humility and deep faith. There are moments when it seemed sure that he would be killed merely because someone hated him. And now, the city is elated that he is their ruler and not Haman. The Jews are elated because they have a champion in the presence of the king. If the Jews could rejoice over Mordecai, how much more can we rejoice over our champion? We have a champion who is right now in the presence of the king. He has received all honor and glory and power. And he actually did die, but he rose again. We have a greater Mordecai to rejoice over. Mordecai was a man who was God's means to save his people from physical death. Christ is the God-man who saves us from the second death for life. Book of Esther, when Mordecai is its central character, a snippet of how God's people live according to Scripture's wisdom. Mordecai receives no special revelation from God other than this word that he has. We can best assume that he knew the scriptures and he knew God's promises. And that he received and he lived in light of these promises. He was faithful. He used his head. And he points us to the one who was faithful because we could not be faithful. Mordecai points us to our head, Jesus Christ, who is in all things preeminent. Let's pray. to your people and that we would be overjoyed at the knowledge that we have a greater Mordecai to rejoice over. We pray that your spirit has been working and active. We pray that you would continue to draw us to your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name.